let's be real. Lawsuits are no fun, but with Paulson and Nace, at least they are a little easier. With two DC-born partners, Paulson and Nace will fight for you the way only a Washingtonian could. Paulson and Nace handles medical malpractice, wrongful death, and other complex injury cases involving negligence. So if you have been hurt or lost a loved one because of someone else's mistake or negligence, call Paulson and Nace for a no-obligation consultation. Visit www.paulsonandnace.com or call 202-463-1999. Here's what DC is talking about. We've got huge, huge commander's news. Dan Snyder, remember him, has picked a buyer for the team. Audio producer Julia Karen is here to celebrate, but also to caution us all against getting too excited yet. Then we've got CityCast contributor Dan Reed and WAMU reporter Martin Oustermule here to talk about new metro bus routes, legal cannabis rules in Maryland, and a very strange dispute over transformer statues. Yes, those transformers in Georgetown. Today is Friday, April 14th. I'm Michael Schaefer, and this is CityCast DC. All right, Julia, so I feel like we should start this episode with like a traffic advisory for people who uh, may be inconvenienced by the massive parades that uh, will (laughs) apparently be taking place across D.C. (laughs) So normally I would agree with you, but I feel like every time I come here and talk about Dan Snyder, I have to caution everyone to not plan the parade quite yet, you know? I think literally people have said when he ceases to be the owner of the football team, we will have a parade. Shut it down. Constitution or Independence Avenue. It's all ours. So (laughs) I imagine people have seen the news by now that Dan Snyder has agreed to sell the team to the group that was led by Philadelphia 76ers co-owner Josh Harris for six billion with a B dollars. If that sounds like a large number, it is. It would be the most expensive sale of a sports franchise in history. So shout out to the commanders if they get that price. One thing that's important, and I say don't plan the parade, and I do mean it, the NFL owners have to approve it first. But all signs look to this being the thing that's going to happen, and DC would be rid of Dan Snyder, maybe not once and for all because of all the hearings going on, but in terms of being a commander's owner, he would be Gonzo Alfonso. Yeah, no, I think he, he's the plan is for him to expatriate. <laughs> Seriously. That's so, right, to, to, to Great Britain, right? But look, it is a crazy moment because I've always maintained that like from an anthropological point of view, the presence of Dan Snyder is a good thing. I think a tribe that is our tribe, the Washingtonians, needs a shared enemy. Mm. And uh, hating on the uh, football owner has been a uniting, bonding thing for uh, our whole uh, community. And now that will uh, be gone, or at least for a while. What do we know about Josh Harris, the new guy? So what we know is that he co-owns the Philadelphia 76ers. He co-owns part of Prudential Center, which is where the New Jersey Devils play out of the hockey team. He also co-owns the New Jersey Devils as well, since he has the Prudential Center. But also, like, Lakers legend Magic Johnson is part of this bid. It isn't just like, oh, this guy is coming in and he has no idea how to run a sports franchise. This is a guy with serious bona fides who's coming in to do this. And he's got got Mitchell Rails, who's uh, the founder of Glenstone and a genuine billionaire and and the the one person in this posse who uh seems to actually live here but you make a good point he's he is a person with like legit sports ownership experience which is different than 
uh, how Dan Snyder was 24 years ago. I suspect that for a while, like that, um, his, you know, not running a franchise that has sort of frat house uh, sexual ethics and tawdry picking fights with fans and so on, that's going to win him a pretty long uh, honeymoon. At some point, though, they're going to have to start to win because uh, that is really the ultimate uh, aphrodisiac for, for fans. And if they don't, then all of a sudden people are going to be calling into sports radio to rant about this guy and whatever his alleged failings are. To be fair, I would rather have people call in about him being a bad owner because they don't win than like having people call in because like the former SEC chair is investigating the owner, you know, like in terms of power rankings, this 100%. seems like the correct power ranking. Yes, it is true. But look, can I also I actually wrote about this in my political column this week, not about uh, the prospects for the uh, the team. But uh, one of the things I thought was like interesting and sort of telling about the whole thing was that there were, you know, a number of uh, bidders, potential owners, deep, very, very, very deep pocketed people obviously mentioned. All of them were sort of out of town based. The uh, Harris Group obviously has Rails, who's a, a, a local guy, but the principals were uh, out of town based, would have been commuting in. And, you know, I sort of th think back to when Snyder bought the team and the idea was here's this self-made guy and it's a sign that Washington has really arrived as a, you know, economic entity self-made guy who had nothing to do with the government. And um, in fact, as you said, sports prices have gone insane mm -hmm. so that like the ordinary tycoons who used to own teams can't do it anymore. It has to be sort of people in a, just a couple of uh, industries that, that congregate places. And this, you know, still ain't one of those places. For sure. But I think there also is a bit of like Icarus flying too close to the sun kind of deal here where like Snyder grew up and he was a fan. Like when he purchased the yeah. team in 99, he said it was the most wonderful thing that's ever happened to him. And since then, it has literally been nothing but a headache. And so, I don't know, maybe don't own the team that you grew up rooting for is the moral of the story, too. Just because you said that, I agree that I will never <laughs> purchase. The so we'll, ne we'll never own sports teams. <laughs> yeah. good, good to clarify that. Thanks, Mike. All right. Thanks, Julia. It's time to get dressed up, DC. So Others Might Eat is having its Young Professionals Network Spring Soiree that's to help raise funds for homelessness in DC. The gala is on the evening of May 17th at the National Museum of Women in the Arts. There will be live music from DJ Heat from the Washington Wizards, photo booths, food, and even a special appearance by a former actor from Pretty Little Liars. Wow. There will also be a canned food drive, so be sure to bring a few cans to support Sum's Food Pantry. Grab tickets before they're gone at sum.org slash spring soiree. That's S-O-M-E dot O-R-G slash spring soiree. See you there. Uh, all right. So we've got Dan Reed and Martin Austermuel here to talk about things that probably will not cause a parade but are really interesting and important all the same hey guys good to be here thanks for having me all right so what folks may not know is dan reed is one of the great bus fans of the washington <laughs> region so like next week monday it's going to be like oscar night for you because they the metro system the uh, wamada is rolling out a new map that is touted as the biggest bus route redesign in 50 years um 
this is like a actually a, a big deal that should matter to regular people, not just bus enthusiasts, because once upon a time, the buses were the only public transit around. Then the metro got developed and buses turned into like kind of capillaries uh, that fed these arteries that were the metro routes. And uh, and the bus routes got kind of weird. The idea now is they're going to redo a bunch of routes to make them make more sense, to serve some underserved areas and make some connections that hadn't been made. They're going to have, they say, 100 bus routes that will have a 20-minute frequency or better. Uh, many will have like 10, 12-minute frequencies. It'll be 24-7. There'll be simpler routes, more direct routes. Some adjacent areas that are not currently connected will be connected. It's supposed to be awesome. But Dan, what do you make of all this? This is uh, not just the Oscars for me. It's the Oscars, the Super Bowl, and Christmas all wrapped up into one. Uh, it's a big deal. Metro hasn't done this in 50 years. There are lots of weird little quirks in the Metro bus system that predate to like when DC still had streetcars that have not been looked at. And this is a chance to like finally address that. You know, for instance, you know, if you know the 90 buses, they stop a half mile short of Woodley Park Metro at this little turnaround before the Duke Ellington Bridge. And that's because that's where the streetcar turnaround was, right? So that was 60 years ago. There are lots of little things like that that Metro can finally address for the first time to make the system work better for everybody. Wait, why is it only now that they can finally address it for the first time? Was something stopping them before? Inertia. (laughs) (laughs) I think inertia is a big part of it. Bus redesigns are big and expensive and complicated. People, not surprisingly, can be very defensive of their local bus route and their routine and are reluctant to see that change. Uh, So I think it, it took a long time to get to this place. All right, so what's the benefit for, again, for people who don't care passionately about the granular details of public transit? How is this going to change the experience of living in the district or the DMV? Well, I think for the bare minimum, if you never step on a bus, it means that WMATA can use its resources more efficiently, right? For the amount of money they have for public transit, that they can run more buses and more service, which is, if you care about fiscal responsibility, that's good. (laughs) Uh, Beyond that, Metrobus, unlike Metrorail, is actually almost back to where it was in terms of pre-pandemic ridership. A lot more people are riding the bus uh, compared to Metro, which means that this is actually a good time to revisit how does the system work because a lot of people are taking advantage of it. And there, for people who do rely on Metrobus, it means the bus is going to come more often, more reliably. It means you... Uh, have more places you can get to. It means more access to jobs, more access to fun things, more access to friends and family. Like for bus for bus riders, and that some people who use it sometimes, people use it all the time. It's a higher quality of life and more access to the region, and frankly, a more dignified experience. You know, you get closer to what people in cars get to enjoy, which is you turn it on and go whenever you want to. Is this going to be expensive? Do they actually have the money to do this? So there are sort of two scenarios that Metro Bus is talking about. What they're going to present on Monday is essentially like the idealized, here is what you could have if you gave us some more money (laughs) than we currently have for the bus. And if they can get that funding from DC, Maryland, and Virginia, here's what you're going to get. If they don't get as much money or if they don't get that money at all, there's potentially a more pared back version of this of the new bus network that we might see. And that's part of why they're rolling out this sort of visionary network is that people are gonna get feedback. They're like, I don't like this, I like this. And that can help Metro figure out, well, if we have to do a more constrained redesign, here's what people actually would prefer the most. 
this public feedback, how much of that's going to be like, you know, if it was me, I would say, yes, this is a fantastic idea, especially if you have many more buses from Chevy Chase, D.C., where I happen to live a mile from the metro that go in the direction of either metro lines or downtown, which is to say I would do so out of like self-interest, not sort of geeky system wide health. I think that's okay. That's what they're going to expect. They're going to expect people to make lots of selfish recommendations for themselves, which, you know, ideally, if you aggregate it all together, you'll get a picture of what people want. Me personally, I live a mile and a half from the Tacoma Metro Station, and there's currently a Montgomery County ride-on bus that goes there, and it comes every 45 minutes. It's dumb, and it doesn't run on weekends. So I would like for there to be a nice frequent bus I could step out of my house and go to Tacoma. That would make me ride the bus a lot more, and I ride the Metro a lot more if I could do that. We're in this sort of weird moment in, particularly in DC, with budget and transit stuff, where there's kind of two versions portrayed. On the one hand, you hear from time to time, you know, it's a disaster. No one is going downtown. The city's tax space is in deep trouble. You also hear, well, you know, we can afford to make Metro bus in DC free for everyone, and it's not that expensive, and it doesn't do that much, and blah, blah, blah. And obviously, there are different people who are expressing these different differing views. But Martin, you cover City Hall some. What's the reality? Is this a stretch budget-wise? Is this something DC can afford? It's something it should afford in, in the hierarchy of needs? I mean, even seven months ago, when I think the idea was first floated, DC could afford it. Now, it's questionable. I mean, it's a much tighter budget season. And so they're just trying to decide whether fare-free Metrobus within city limits is a good idea. What I thought was surprising about it is that the idea was rolled out and of course, lots of urbanists, lots of transit enthusiasts were like, this is an awesome idea. This is going to help low income folks. This is going to get people back on the bus. And then there was other urbanists that were just like, no, 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 you're getting it all wrong. You don't want to make a public good like Metro seem free or be free. You want to improve service first, make sure that it's good. And then you can start addressing issues of like, do low income riders need subsidies to help them pay for the bus or pay for Metro? So I think the debate is pretty fascinating. I think ultimately whether DC will make Metro buses free has yet to be decided. I think there's another month or so in budget deliberations and the council has to figure out, like, are we going to put, you know, tens of millions of dollars towards this or any of the other many priorities that people are saying that they have to spend money on? Yeah. I think that's a good point. It's all about trade-offs, right? Like, I think people have portrayed this as more service versus making Metro bus free. And it could be both, right? But it depends on which, which you want to prioritize more. I will be curious to see how that comes out. So if, if you're making a map and you're following the news from Maryland this week, you might think that there's going to be a lot of potential ridership <laughs> from the city out to Prince George's and Montgomery County <laughs> in the name of purchasing weed. Because uh, with the new governor in place, there has been a decriminalization or legalization of recreational cannabis in Maryland. But there has not been until this week any sort of clarity on like, what are the rules? Can you just walk into a store? Do you have to do this? Do you have to be a state resident? Blah, blah, blah. And that has now become a little bit clearer. Dan, you are a Maryland resident. Can you fill us in on exactly what the, the, what the rules are going to be? Yes. As a Maryland resident and someone who enjoys weed as a sometimes food, we'll have to wait until July 1st. That's when marijuana is legalized fully in Maryland. That's when they open what they've heard was the weed retail market. 
And basically, the state's going to issue licenses for different types of recreational cannabis sellers, right? You can currently distribute medical marijuana in the state, but they'll also be allowing 75 growers, 300 dispensaries, and 200 delivery services. And they'll also be a quote-unquote micro licenses, I guess sort of like the microbreweries of weed, right? Where sellers and growers can operate in little spaces with smaller batches of weed. Like I said, the state already has medical marijuana, and so the bill would require dispensaries to, to set aside some of their stuff for people who hold a medical marijuana card and to prioritize them. Another big thing, and this is something that Governor Moore had talked a lot about during the campaign last year, is ensuring that minority entrepreneurs can benefit and have a role in, in legal weed. For a long time, there has been a disparity in how white versus non-white people have been treated in terms of drug offenses. And there is a fear, not just in Maryland, but in other places that are talking about this, that people of color won't be able to actually get an economic benefit from legal weed because they're going to get pushed out by big corporations and stuff. So the state would give priority to minority business owners in communities that have been disproportionately affected by past marijuana laws. What does that mean? Like, so if I, John Q., weed smoking public want to open a store uh, in which I sell cannabis. Presumably I have to like get some scratch together to rent a space and, you know, buy a cash register and all that <laughs> stuff. Where is it that I interact with the government and where the government can put its thumb on the scale in order to, you know, redress past hurts or, or whatever? I think it would be in terms of giving licenses out. Like since there's a limit on how many licenses they were going to issue, they can prioritize certain applicants for licenses over others. So what what about us, the individuals, <laughs> say we are not Maryland residents and we, we make our way to a, a store across the district line? All good? Yeah. So starting on July 1, if you are 21 and older, you're allowed to hold and consume up to one and a half ounces of weed or 12 grams of concentrated weed or a total amount of products that does not exceed 750 milligrams THC. So that, that's comparable, if I understand right, to decriminalization in DC, right? Like there's a certain amount you are allowed to have on you as an individual, as opposed to like a grower or a distributor or something. Yes, it's, I think in DC it's a little bit more, it's two ounces. So I guess technically if you're crossing from Friendship Heights into DC, you got to leave like half an ounce of the border. I don't know, but still, I don't think they're going to make a big deal out of that one. So this is a, the weed version of firework stands, right? Like instead of firework stands, the DC land, there'll be just little piles of, of weed. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> apparently. Is there going to be like delivery in DC where there's this sort of weird gray market? A lot of people arrange for cannabis to be delivered to them. In, in Maryland, presumably that could be done fully legally. Is that allowed for? It is. The state will have a cap of 200 licenses for delivery services, which is personally exciting to me. I was stopped on the street a couple of weeks ago by a guy on like a moped who wanted to like tell me about his weed delivery service. He told me he lived in my neighborhood, which is great. So I hope he gets a license because he's three blocks from my house. Can we order Maryland weed to be delivered in the District of Columbia? Why? You have your own weed delivery in D.C. 
well, but I want fully legal and licensed. <laughs> you want that special Maryland bud. <laughs> well, they can't remember they can't cross state lines, but the district is in a state, so maybe there's a quirk there. I don't know. But I mean, my question is, is this like, are we soon going to see like Uber Eats or DoorDash for weed? Is that the next kind of step in legalization? I'm sure they, I'm sure they've thought well, about it. Well, from what you're all saying, it, they're trying to put the thumb on the scale the other way to make it so that just people who aren't don't have the power of a huge corporation behind them are able to be in the market. But of course, the reason people do Uber Eats and DoorDash is it is like more convenient than like calling the restaurant on the phone and hoping they understood your order and hoping they'll, you know, figure out where you live as opposed to right. the very convenient interface that the big corporations have. Right, right, right. And and the one thing I'm, I'm looking at for Maryland, which has happened in a lot of other states, is that they have these like social equity provisions to make sure it's not a just a bunch of white guys that get these very lucrative licenses to sell weed. But what's kind of happened in some of the states is that you get basically those same white men essentially find fronts like people who they can say, listen, this is my social equity applicant. Like this is their business, but it's not really their business. I mean, they're the front for the company. And that kind of does away with the idea that you're giving that social equity applicant like a real chance in this industry. I mean, Maryland had this problem with medical marijuana when it rolled out. It was all a bunch of white people selling medical marijuana. So they had to go back and, and rejigger the law to make sure that it wasn't just all white folks. But even when they rejiggered the law, they found that it was really difficult to ensure that you're not just handing licenses to these multi-state operators who just conveniently find like that guy in Silver Spring who happens to be Latino or Asian or black. And they can say, well, this is the owner of the dispensary. When to be honest, the dispensary is owned by the multi-state operator out of like California. Yeah, I think this is a problem going back to all sorts of licensure, including things that are much less sexy and newsy than cannabis. That's true. But wait, Martin, you've been reporting on this story. And um I've kind of come to suspect a lot of cannabis was consumed by some of the participants, at least. So there's like a pair of giant statues of the Transformers uh, in front of a house in Georgetown. And this has displeased other people in the neighborhood. And this is trundling towards a conclusion. What's going on, man? I mean, that's basically the summary. And once you throw in the fact that this is Georgetown, people can fill in the blanks and understand how combative this has all gotten. Yeah, this is a, a neuroscientist who lives on Prospect Street, like a block away from the university, a $4 million traditional Georgetown townhouse. And two years ago, he put these massive metal transformer sculptures of Optimus Prime and Bumblebee outside of his house, like right on either side of the door. And these things were, they're huge. They're, one was 10 feet tall, the other was six feet tall. They're made of repurposed car parts. They each weigh like 2,000 pounds. They're huge and they're really beautifully done. Of course, attracted immediate attention, people taking pictures, people showing up, word spread. And then the backlash began. And it was from local locals in Georgetown who said, listen, we've got unwanted elements coming on our sidewalks, taking pictures, blocking the streets. It also violates historic preservation rules because these aren't compatible with the historic district. So again, this being Georgetown, this being D.C., this thing ended up before a federal board because Georgetown, anything that happens to Georgetown houses has to go before the old Georgetown board, which basically rules whether it's compatible with the aesthetics of the historic neighborhood. And they, not surprisingly, ruled that the Transformers were not. Wait, do you think like if, if this neuroscientist had instead put up statues of like, I don't know, like James Madison and Alexander Hamilton in front of his $4 million Georgetown traditional row house, that he would have gotten the same complaints? Well, that's his exact argument. He hasn't taken this to court yet. He's, he's been telling me for two years that he's going to fight it out in court if it comes to it. But his argument is just that. This idea of historic compatibility is a little foolish because what if he just took a transformer, got, he got a, a kind of a classical sculpt, sculptor to sculpt a transformer out of marble and put that outside of his house in this kind of traditional Georgetown style. 
would that be historically compatible? I mean, are you talking about the imagery or the style? That would be sick, though. I want that. But what we're really talking about, though, is like his neighbors not liking the fact that random passersby are stopping, pulling their cars over, posing for pictures, and otherwise disturbing their pristine block. So another twist in the story is that this guy has four of these sculptures. Two of them are outside. One is in the house. And he had a, a fourth one which he moved from outside, swapped out for another one, and put this other one on the roof of his house. So he has one on the roof of his house, one inside the house, and two outside. I mean, that's a lot of sculptures. But the one on the roof, you can see from the street. And because you can see it from the street in a historic district, the old Georgetown board told him two weeks ago that he has to get a permit for it, because that's how strict the historic district is. It's, It's not just like exterior modifications to your home. It's just even like the perception of changes to your home. So the fact that he might have to go back and literally get a permit for something that's on the roof of his house, but because it's viewable from public space, it has to be permitted. Here's something that catches me about the people worried about like tourists walking by their house and stuff. This is the same block as the exorcist steps, right? Like people are have been coming to this block for decades. (laughs) Yeah, and it's across the street from the university. And there was an ANC meeting about this two weeks ago where a woman who lives on the street who's been like kind of the main foe here, maybe the Decepticon of of this whole saga said, listen, you know, we have unruly crowds coming, blah, blah, blah. These things are terrible. They're disruptive. And then one of the ANC commissioners is a Georgetown student and lives across the street. And he literally said, listen, for Georgetown students and Georgetown visitors, these things are amazing. They're an attraction. There's something like to be celebrated, not to be seen as disruptive. And I think he also took some exception to the idea of, is it the sculptures that are disruptive or is it the people coming to see the sculptures that are disruptive? And that ended up being part of the debate, too. I mean, shouldn't like all of the parties in this have known what they were getting into? Like if you buy a house in Georgetown, particularly on the street with the exorcist steps, strangers, people you don't know, people who might not be so rich may be walking by. Some of them may pose for pictures or make noise or otherwise disturb your rest. Similarly, if you buy a house in Georgetown, a neighborhood that is governed by these ridiculous rules and and literally something called the Mm -hmm. old Georgetown board, also have to know that there are going to be a lot of rules about what you can and can't do to your house that wouldn't apply if you bought in almost any other neighborhood. Like, I don't know why any of this should be surprising anybody. And I I guess I have less sympathy for the people uh, complaining about uh, passersby. (laughs) Yeah. And the Georgetown Business Improvement District has actually tried to kind of find some middle ground here. They basically approached the homeowner and said, if we can find public space elsewhere in Georgetown where we can put these things because they're such an attraction and they and Georgetown businesses want these things there because they attract people to a neighborhood that traditionally has been seen as kind of stuffy after the pandemic, like it's not as much a retail destination anymore. So like a bunch of cool transformer sculptures are a net positive, right? But the homeowner is sticking to his guns on this one. He's like, no, it's my, it's right outside my house. These aren't historically compatible. People have like planters outside their doors. Why don't they have to get permits for those if I'm getting permits, if I have to get permits for my sculptures? Yeah. They have cars, too. There's a whole bunch of things that we could describe as like historically incompatible for Georgetown, like to take this to its logical end. I don't know. I was never into Transformers growing up, but I am rooting for this with all of my heart and soul. Well, I mean, someone mentioned in the comments when I when I reported about this, they're like, if this homeowner just parked a pickup truck in front of his house and put the Transformers in the bed of the pickup truck, no one would have any right to say you have to move those because they'd be parked in a car. As long as it's legally parked, he can keep it there in perpetuity, basically. Well, aren't the Transformers, can't they turn into cars? Like, couldn't he just say he's got two cars parked in front of his house? I thought that was what the, the gimmick was. 
Yeah. I mean, if he could fold these things into Optimus Prime, like, you know, the truck and Bumblebee, the sports car, it'd be amazing. We'll see. All right, Martin, thank you so much for being here, man. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And Dan Reed, it's always good to be with you. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And lastly, I don't know if this is related to Transformers, but we have a DC life hack of the day as we do every day. And it's perfect maybe for an adventure this weekend when the weather is supposed to be gorgeous. Uh, if you visit the Einstein Memorial on Constitution Avenue, there is a star map on the ground at Einstein's feet. If you stand on Polaris and talk to the statue, there will be an echo which only you will be able to hear. And that's all for today here on CityCast DC. Our lead producer is Priyanka Tilve. Our producer is Julia Karen. Our newsletter writer is Kayla Cote-Stemmerman. And our hosts are Bridget Todd and me, Michael Schaefer from Politico. Music is by Alex Roldan. If you enjoyed the show, tell someone who loves Transformers or is super picky about their neighborhood aesthetic. We'd love to hear all of your thoughts on that issue. We'll be back Monday morning with more news from around the city. Bye. What, what are the rules going to be? I actually don't know the answer to that question. Oh. It's not that big a deal. <laughs> <laughs>